Welcome to Public Health Out Loud. Hi, I'm Dr. Jim McDonald. And I'm Dr. Phil Chan. Welcome, everyone. Dr. Chan, great to hang out as always. Today's topic is one that's near and dear to me. We have Dr. Carol Lewis here talking about refugee health. Dr. Lewis, welcome to Public Health Out Loud. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, Dr. Lewis, we chatted before and it's it's great to have you today, but can you just tell us a little bit about who you are and what do you do? Yes, I'm a general pediatrician. I work at Hasbro Children's Hospital, and I think a lot of people uh, think of Hasbro as the wonderful tertiary care that it provides to children in the area, but we also provide primary care for about 10,000 kids, most of them predominantly Medicaid. That's our primary primary task is to provide primary care, well-child visits, preventive services, things like that. We're also a teaching hospital. So we are the main site for medical students and residents who are the residents who are studying to and training to be pediatricians. You know, like myself, you've been a pediatrician for a while and it's glorious to have a historical perspective on pediatrics. But I just want to just talk a little bit about how do you think pediatrics has changed over your career? And, you know, any big changes, but like in particular, what do you think are some of the most important issues facing kids' health today? And, you know, as we sort of talk about it, maybe like, what are some of the big things you've noticed over your career? And then what do you see now as like big things facing kids' health today? Kind of a two-part question there. Yeah. Um, as far as the changes I've seen, I think there's a one of the biggest changes, and I think it's for the better, is that there has been a change in the model in how we um, partner with families. I think when I started many years ago, you know, the approach where the physician, the provider would tell families what to do, that is, has given way to uh, much more partnership with families. Children are part of a family and it's the family, the parents who are really the experts. And so I think the way we approach and provide more team-based care and patients who are really in the center of it has really, really changed and also much more emphasis on looking at data, quality improvement, you know, constantly improving things, looking and seeing if we really are doing what we think we're doing and constantly taking baby steps forward in, in the improvement. As far as the answer to your second question, the biggest challenge is, well, certainly over the last decade, even pre-pandemic, I would say, but certainly the pandemic has amplified it, um, our Mental health concerns, a very, very big piece of it. And we consider that as part of pediatric care. Uh, that's part of health is a child's mental health. I agree. I mean, it's, it's really interesting you say that because one of the things I've noticed during the pandemic in particular was I prescribed a lot more Lexapro than Amoxicillin. And I think it really speaks to a rising issue in pediatric care in general. Like, you know, it's funny when I did my pediatric residency a long time ago, back in the well, 90 to 93, ADHD, I got pretty comfortable with, but anxiety and depression wasn't something I treated. Over my career, though, it's like I treat a lot of anxiety and depression. Uh, let me go back to Dr. Chan. First off, I want to say that I'm really glad that people like you uh, and Dr. McDonald exist. You know, I'm a, a medicine doctor, infectious disease specialist for adults, and I, I get nervous taking care of very, very young kids. So I'm certainly glad that uh, uh, for your work and Dr. McDonald, for you as a pediatrician. But I want to go back to this mental health stuff, too, and just uh, what you've seen as uh, kind of one of the the major concerns, and you know, I will say from a from a young adult, and I take care of a lot of young adults, including some adolescents. I mean, I've seen ADHD uh, as a as a major problem even during the pandemic. I've seen more ADHD in the last year or two, uh, as well as depression and anxiety than you know I'd seen in in years prior to the pandemic. And I guess just want to 
ask your thoughts on uh, some of these mental health outcomes, uh, especially among kids. I mean, is there anything that you, you know we should be doing as parents? Uh, I have a 15 and a 11 year old. Anything that we should be considering as a you know as a state to do, as clinicians, as parents? What are your thoughts on how to get a handle on this mental health really crisis that we're seeing? You know, among everyone, but in this case, kids. I wish I had a magic wand and could, um, you know, could take care of this very, very massive problem. One of the things that is most important is we can't work in silos. I think that families and schools and providers uh, have to come together to look at more system level uh, changes. Certainly individual providers, there are things that we do that say I didn't do 10 years ago. We, you know, screen kids at every well visit for depression and anxiety, and we screen kids for uh, substance use um, in a very systematic way so that we don't miss kids. In fact, you know, kids tell someone when they're at at the point where it's that severe, where they are suicidal, will tell someone only about 50 to 60% of the time. So it's really uh, important to be open. And, And everybody knows it's been very, very difficult over the last couple of years because kids need peers, they need peer relationships. And that's been been so hard. They they went those two years without that. Dr. Lewis, you really bring up a valid point. Like the pandemic changed so much of our lives. And it, it's it's a permanent change too. Like in other words, it's part of our, I think our long-term psyche, not just as children, but just as of the planet, really, the whole entire planet. I want to pivot our conversation right now back to refugee health a little bit. Because that's really the main part of our conversation today is refugee health. Let me go back to Dr. Chan. Dr. Lewis, you also lead something called the Refugee Clinic, or there's a Refugee Clinic that's part of the Hasbro Pediatric Clinic here. Tell us about the Refugee Clinic. Yeah, that is something that's very near and dear to me. You know, of those 10,000 kids, we noticed that certain kids have certain needs and certain strengths that require different approach. And one of those groups of kids were our newly arrived immigrants, the refugee kids, we renamed it the Refugee Health Program because clinic, it, it has the connotation of it's something that we just do within that building in the 20 minutes, three or four times a year that we see them. And it's really a program in that it's connected to the community and connected to other stakeholders and other uh, other people that are very much involved in the health of uh, refugee children. Why don't we just start simple? Like, what is a refugee and why should we be concerned about their health? You know, there's a lot of misconception about immigration status and who's a refugee. And uh, refugees are people who are fleeing conflict. It's usually war. So they're usually coming from places where there is war or else for personal persecution and they can't go home. And about 1% of refugees are ever resettled in a third country. They're often coming from countries that are neighboring countries that are resource poor. Um, They are defined and protected in international law. But in the press, we hear it kind of the word refugee bandied about in a way that's more general. What we do is really specific. We're taking care of kids who are coming to this country with a, a designation of refugee status in their immigration status or more recently with the Afghan evacuee, they have stat, uh, the evacuee status. And we should care because these families are incredibly remarkable and resilient. I mean, the fact that they're here speaks to their strength and their resilience, and they do need support when they first arrive. 
once they are here and they've arrived and with support and they're healthy, they thrive and become incredible members of our community. And so that's that's why I think it's really important. I think everyone should should want uh, refugees to be healthy. Yeah. And I think just curiously, if you look across Fort Island, and I'm sure this changes a little bit from time to time, given what's happening in the world, but what nations do we see refugees mostly from? You're right. It does change. And initially, when the Refugee Health Program started, it was 2006, 2007. And at that time, they were most primarily Liberian refugees. And we have a very high, I think we have the highest number of Liberian Americans uh, in Providence than any other city in the United States. And there was a huge influx because of the civil war that was going on in Liberia at the time. And since then, we've had communities from Nepal, Burundi, Eritrea. Really a lot of countries. I mean, oh, it, it, yeah. it's, it's just amazing. And I, and I think I'd like to kind of understand that a little better. Like, you know, one of the things that's interesting about your career is you're the founder and director of the Refugee Health Program at Hasbro Children's Hospital. So really the only children's hospital in Rhode Island, but a large children's hospital to be sure. Why don't we just talk a little bit about how did the program start and any, any stories you can share? Sure. It actually, uh, it's kind of an interesting, it almost started by accident. Um, Back in 2006, you know, we were always, had always been the clinic that would accept refugees. And we have partners, the resettlement agencies, which are Dorcas International Institute and the Diocese of Providence. And they would set up an appointment because they needed to be seen and so they could get vaccinated and start and go to school. Um, There was a large influx of Liberian families and we knew that we couldn't take care of them all um, so quickly. And we, a group of us said, some nurses, uh, my colleague, Dr. Uh, Delma Jean Watts, who was a fellow at the time. We said, why don't we come in on a Saturday? And we did that. And we found that when we did it very focused, we had 30 or 40 adults. We had some of our internal medicine partners come in and join us. And we found it was much better when we did it in a real thoughtful way. And then we didn't know where to go from there. So what we did is listen to the community. You know, and uh, we started what we called focus groups and the communities called them town halls. And we would just listen, you know, what is it that you need? What is, you know, what, what do you want? What's important about your health? And they have taken us by the hand and has led us through the development of this program um, by what they see as their priorities. For instance, it was very clear what the message that we received is that trust is hugely important. They don't want to see 30 different doctors. So we said, okay, we'll make sure that whoever sees them for that intake will be that come their private, become their primary care provider if they choose. They said that we don't understand the system. So we worked very closely with the interpreters who are often from the community um, since the languages are a little, uh, are uncommon here in the United States. And we started working in a community health um, health worker so that they could be more front and center as far as health navigation, primarily initially and access. They want their kids to go to school, get them in within 30 days, 30 to 60 days. So we had to change the way we do the clinic so that there would be a, a access mental health. We were talking earlier about mental health and certainly for these families and kids, there was a lot of exposure to trauma and we knew that that was going to be a major piece and how mental health is accepted and understood in other cultures is very different. 
I think that one of the things that you're alluding to, and, and you know, this is kudos to yourself, is that a lot of times when these initiatives spring up, like you know, refugee clinics, like any other sort of specialty clinics, they're often led by champions like yourself. So I just I do want to acknowledge the work that you have done, uh, Dr. Nugent, and others. Uh, it's really a tribute both to medicine as well as to clinical, you know, public health in our state. So thank you again for leading this. I do want to ask, though, and I think you know we have a, a general audience who tends to listen to this, but when we think about refugees, I'm going to ask this with my, my clinical hat on, uh, you know, there are some different health concerns. And I guess the question is, you know, when you're evaluating a refugee, someone who has just immigrated to this country, what are some of the different things that you're thinking about versus someone, you know, a typical, you know, United States born patient, if you will, who you know, who is not coming from another country, what are sort of the the considerations that you're thinking about specific to a patient who may be a refugee? Certainly. I think of it as two different buckets. Uh, There's the first bucket, which is the immediate problem, uh, uh, the immediate health concerns, which are actually pretty easy to take care of. And they're often the issues that excites most medical students and residents early in training, because I've seen things here that usually folks don't see here in the United States. So you have to go travel and do international global health uh, to really see these often infectious diseases. But those are often things that we can take care of pretty there's, you know, where it can be very, very straightforward. And we screen for all of these. We, we screen for um, the more common infectious diseases, and we're guided by the CDC. You know, we they they're very clear in their recommendations for for screening for various um, kids who have immigrated Im- Im- from uh, you know whatever part of the world they've come from. You know, vitamin deficiencies we often often will see. Lead is a is a huge uh, issue. Uh, oftentimes, kids come over with elevated lead, and they're you know more likely to be placed in housing where that makes them even more uh, vulnerable to lead exposure. And so we watch those kids very carefully for that. Oral health, a lot of our kids have never been to a dentist. And so that's that's an issue that we see early on that we, we need to deal with. Those issues, pretty easy to identify early on. Even things like hearing, you know, hearing screening, you know, most countries don't have hearing screenings like the robust hearing screening we have in Rhode Island. So we have kids who are, we pick up who have hear, hearing uh, deficits. But I think the more long-term prop uh, issues, which is why it's really important, I, the residents who see them for that initial visit become their PCP, because then I think it's very important where that relationship really uh, is front and center. And that would be the mental health issues, as we were uh, talking about earlier. It would also be issues with nutrition. Interestingly, most of the kids who come over are at a very healthy weight when they're here. They're not overweight they're they're not malnourished and they have might you know nutrient deficiencies but after they've been here for a year they catch up to our other patients who are medicaid patients and we start to see an increase in obesity and then a year after that they even surpass our other medicaid patients so there's something that we don't totally understand but we know that it needs special attention and work with the community to address that when i worked on the navajo reservation this is something that was well documented there as well is that once you introduce the quote unquote processed food American diet to people, it just turns out people gain a lot of weight. I think it's because humans like sugar and it's easy to get sugar in this country. One of the things I'm just curious about, you kind of alluded to this earlier, but like, you know, stories are interesting. Like when you see patients, do you think of any 
you know, stories where people, you know, you found a disease that was kind of surprising and you really helped somebody or even a story where things just didn't go so well. But like, I'm just curious, like any stories that stick out in your mind about just some, you know, health outcomes and people who were, you know, in the refugee health clinic, be curious what your thoughts about that are. You know, it's very difficult for me to talk about families without talking about the resilience. I mean, I do have tremendous stories about folks who have come here very burdened with issues, but then have just absolutely flourished. Maybe for this audience, it might be nice to talk about some of the the kids that we've seen who have come here. You know, I have a kiddo who is very much involved with the uh, Refugee Dream Center now who came as a refugee, this is all on their website, so I'm not divulging anything um, private, but he lived in a refugee camp, didn't speak English, but wrote poetry. This young person came as an elementary school-aged child, just flourished, and now is graduated from Rick and is helping other kids apply to college. And they're incredible, remarkable stories. I do think that one of the issues that is always a challenge is the ability to access uh, linguistically and culturally appropriate services. I think we do a pretty good job at Hasbro since we have access to interpreters. Um, I think it's much more difficult for families when they go to subspecial uh, specialists and try to um, and to access care that that sometimes is is very difficult. So that's something that is ongoing. Even our two wonderful refugee, Nonprofit organizations were started by refugees. We have the Refugee Dream Center, led by Omar Ba and his wife, Teddy Jallo, who came over here as refugees. There's always a, this theme of giving back, you know, that, mm. that I've, I've witnessed over the last decade. And there's Aline Binyungu and her husband, who do women's refugee care, who are serving the community, their community. And it's really quite breathtakingly amazing. Yeah. You know, it's, it reminds me too, that uh, in this line of work, it takes a team, right? It's never just one person. And often uh, it's, it's a great team, lots of people working together really to address these social determinants of health. Uh, and certainly in this case, relate to refugee health. You know, one thing that we tend to ask about since, you know, we're in the middle of pandemic is how has COVID affected this work? You know, as you think about refugee health and uh, the health of your patients in general, how has COVID affected access to care or your patients in general? Any comments, any stories? What what are you seeing on the ground? I mean, I think everyone is aware how difficult it's been for kids. I would just say that it's been magnified for our refugee kids. Uh, I'll take, for example, you know, the educational disruption. How how do you access this when maybe you don't have the support from your family? You have family members who are not computer savvy, aren't able to to be able to to guide as other people might be able to do. Parents often are working and weren't able to take time off of work. They didn't have jobs where they could do that. So we would have a lot of instances where older kids who were supposed to be in school themselves were managing the younger kids. Interesting. I, and I wonder if we could shift a little bit in our conversation to, you know, Afghanistan was, you know, a global issue. Of course. And, you know, and we, we saw refugees come to this country from Afghanistan, but that must have had an impact in your clinic. And I, I'm just kind of wondering, what kind of work have you done with Afghanistan refugees in Rhode Island? Just can you talk a little bit about that, Dr. Lewis? Yeah, they they came over um, as evacuees. Uh, and so it was a little different. They did not have any preparation. I mean, I think all of us saw the clips and the news clips in August and people going to the airport and and 
uh, leaving. And they didn't get the preparation that a lot of refugees do get, uh, the health screening, the you know cultural orientation and that piece. They just left quickly. And I have noticed it being very, very hard that there is a tremendous amount of support that they've needed. I also have to say that the tremendous amount of resilience. I, I, you know, it's just mind boggling. But for most of these families, there is not a good health system in Afghanistan. So the navigation of our health system is pretty, pretty difficult, I think, for even U.S. born people. Um, but it is very, very foreign. Um, they have a very high infant mortality and child mortality rate in Afghanistan, in part because there is n- not a, a good functioning health system. So when they come here, it's very, very different, very foreign. The languages, Pashto and Dari, which is what most of them speak, uh, it's been very difficult to access interpreters. Uh, We do it through the language line, but we don't have live interpreters here in Rhode Island right now. And education, very mixed bag. These that when the kids come over, how much education they've had. Um, So some of our kids that have come over haven't had any formal educational experience at all. So that's going to be a bit of a challenge for them as they are very excited to start school and the families really want them to start school, but it, it's going to be a challenge. You know, you sort of alluded to this uh, earlier, but you know, the other major event at this current time, of course, uh, is is the ongoing war in the Ukraine. I mean, we know that there's a lot of countries accepting refugees. Are we here in the US or in specifically Rhode Island? Are you seeing any refugees from Ukraine at all? We have had some families from Ukraine uh, come. They've been coming over um, more independently uh, thus far. So they've been coming over maybe on travel visas or whatever and joining family members uh, or communities who are supporting them. But I am told through our partners, um, the resettlement agencies and Department of Health, uh, that we are uh, expecting probably that in July that we will be welcoming Ukrainian evacuees in a more formal way, pretty much very similar to the way the Afghans came. So yes, the answer to your question is yes, we will. Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Lewis. It's been great talking to you today. Oddly enough, our time has come to a close rather quickly, I might add here, but it's been wonderful to talk about refugee health. I mean, one of the things I really think it's important as I just sort of think about what we've talked about today is like, you know, it's wonderful that you've started this clinic. I think it's amazing and a good example of what physicians do. You find a need in your community, you listen to the people in the community, and then you address the need, which is so how organic this started. I think that's fabulous. I mean, the other thing is like, you know, you see the variety. You know, one of the things I think we forget sometimes in our country is, you know, people do live in situations where they do come to our country. And it's great that there's a clinic we have that can identify those diseases that, quite frankly, most of us aren't used to seeing. And so it provides really, you know, appropriate primary care, you know, for folks who come. It's part of that welcome message. I mean, One of the things I think about when I think about the power of public health, if there's one word that defines public health for me, it's the word welcome, because we really try to do make everybody feel welcome in whatever stage of life they're in. Um, But it's been great talking to you about and super that Hasbro Children's Hospital has this to offer. What are our traditions, though, of public health out loud as we end every episode with the final word from Dr. Chan? Dr. Chan, what's the final word for today's episode? Wonderful. Thank you, Dr. McDonald. And thank you, Dr. Lewis, again for joining us. And thank you for all your work in general at the Refugee Clinic and just in general, uh, working with the kids of our state and doing a good job to keep them healthy. So thank you so much. In closing, I do want to leave our audience with a moment of Zen to consider throughout the rest of your week. And here it is, a quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson. Do not go where the path may lead. Go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. Thank you all and be well. 
I want to thank Stephanie Menders, our executive producer, Carol Stone, our technical director. I'm Dr. Jim McDonald. Have a good and keep up the great.